I was asked to do this forum on Matthew 18 because I didn't sign on for, for any work. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, I have to do something. And I will just uh, get a panel of uh, experts in this field and I will stand back and, and watch. And uh, the way it turned out, I couldn't really find any volunteers to, to help out. And uh, so I, I changed a little bit my perspective on what this particular form ought to be and limited my study on two things or three things, perhaps. I'll get into that a little bit later. I believe we all have probably mistaken ideas of what Matthew 18 really means because I realize now that I studied it to the depth I did that I had some erroneous ideas about it. And uh, hopefully we can bring some of that out together today. Um, I wish I would have a better title. Uh, it sounds a little negative. And uh, the only uh, excuse I have for that, I had to come up with a title within minutes. It was very late, almost midnight, and, and I was told by tomorrow we need to have a title and you better get going. So <laughs> uh, that's the best I could do in a very short time from what I knew at that point. But we, going on to the, the next slide here, if I can re remotely do that. Uh, why do we have this forum? And I obviously didn't suggest this forum, and I, I never would have even thought of doing anything like that. But Sister Barbara had a, a thought that I think she should share with us why a forum like that and what it can do for us. Okay, now you all know that I'm that sister. <laughs> I was hoping to keep this anonymous, but at any rate. Um, but why have this forum? I found that I had a lot of um, erroneous ideas about this particular passage as well. And as you know, I struggled for many years with a, um, a marriage relationship that basically uh, went from bad to worse to essentially non-existent. And um, then, thank God, he intervened, and I started learning about some biblical principles. And I also studied Matthew 18. And I especially found out the first step, uh, it's not up anymore. Anyway, uh, verse 15 is, I found it a treasure. It's like finding a diamond. I mean, it made such a difference in my life and in my relationships and especially in uh, my marriage. So that's why I was excited because when you find a treasure, you want to share it with other people and, show, and your joy. And so I'll just sort of paraphrase that verse. If your brother sins against you, go to him face to face for the purpose of reconciliation 
restoring a loving relationship. So this passage is not about church discipline per se, like I kind of figured it was. Maybe we run through that at testimonies in short form. We kind of go ding, 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 ding. What do we do? It's really about reconciliation, how to deal with conflicts. It's about love and mercy and forgiveness. And my problem is I didn't even see that as applicable to my everyday life. So guess what? I didn't use it. That's just one of those things you learn for testimonies or for things like that. I, I was also confused about what's an offense. I surmise it must be something really big, very serious, and must be against church rules, because after all, it can end in excommunication if we follow the three steps. But then I found out that's totally wrong, and um, it's really any hurt or perceived wrong against me. Because remember, all those things start little, and if we don't deal with them, they get to be huge issues. And so when I felt someone hurt me, this is what's kind of the way I was thinking at the time, if I thought someone hurt me, I would actually cause increased conflict if I confronted that other person. So what I tried to do is you know, forgive that person, because I know I have to forgive them, without facing them. And guess what that resulted in? I stuffed it. I thought I had to be really strong and take all those bad feelings and deal with them inside, silently suffering. <laughs> but as usual and as predicted by the Bible, guess what? My anger grew and I became extremely, extremely bitter because I had no way of dealing with these things. I just kept collecting them. And I have to say also my other way of handling things like this, an offense, was to tell others of course, that was under the pretense of trying to get a solution or, you know, try to figure out the best way to approach that other person. Um, but what, what was it really? I was trying to get sympathy, consolation, or let off steam. And guess what the Bible calls all that stuff? Gossip or defaming the other person. There's no provisions for that in the Bible, that kind of behavior. But that's what I was doing. And guess what? None of them are and were compatible with a good relationship or a good marriage for sure. But I found out if I followed especially that first step of Matthew 18 and actually got the courage to face the other person God's way, the burdens of unresolved conflicts were lifted. And I was able to be free to have peace and joy and um, have a good relationship. But now that put me in another fix. Now I have to actually face that person. That's really, really hard. Um, go to an offender, and that's hard, that's scary. Well, I felt like I need to get prepared for battle. I'm going to war. So, you know, when you do something really hard, that's when you finally go around to getting to God. So at least that's a good thing. So I prayed, are you sure, God, this is not gonna increase the conflict or the trouble? And because it's hard, I also prayed for courage and a battle plan, but then guess what? As usual, God has interesting ways of handling these things. He made me examine myself in a much more deeper way than I had before. And I started asking myself, what did I contribute to this conflict? And generally I could acknowledge maybe 5%, but I mean, you know, he had the 95%, and surely he was the major guy in wrong, or whoever it is, so I thought I was off the hook. 
you know, obviously it's his duty to ask for forgiveness if you have 95%. But, you know, in the Bible it doesn't talk about percentages or wrongdoings. It just says, if I sin, I need to resolve my part, even if it's only 1% or less. So, yeah, I discovered that once I made, that's another cool thing, once I made that first step in reconciliation, it opened the door for the other person. After all, you can't have a fight if you both agree. I also had to admit that my percentages were way off, of course. Um, but when I got a little more adept at this practice and um, started to develop more courage and there was less of a delay in re trying to resolve issues, I was pleased to even realize that most of these things weren't even issues. They were misunderstandings, they were um, uh, misinterpretations, and they were so easily resolved. And so I learned some, so I found out that that first step of Matthew 18 is just really awesome. And it's so hard, and yet we don't want to do it, and yet that's when we get our relief of our burdens. Um, I also learned some other important things about time in following Matthew 18. Um, it's commonly said, oh, give that guy some time, you know, without going to him, and, you know, he'll get over it or something, or things will change. Well, guess what that does? That just increases our barriers of our relationships, and it increases our misunderstandings, because what do we do in our own selves? We keep going over and over and over in those self-centered thoughts and stay stuck. Time needs to be spent actively working toward reconciliation. And the faster you get started on it, the easier it is. The other thing I learned about time is that um, my hurt feelings, my guilt, my sin, often needed time to identify the, the heart issues, the underlying heart issues, while in prayer, while thinking about these things, so that after I spoke with this other person face to face, I also had to give that person time to allow these things to be digested, for him to pray, and so on. And a lot of times this means going back to that person multiple times, or it might be an investment of several hours even to reach resolutions. And basically I need to take plan on it taking a lot of time. So, I mean, this is just a real brief little thing about how I got excited about, especially the first step of Matthew 18. But I can say that um, my marriage has changed for, I mean, it's just plain incredible. Once we both, and just starts with one, but when we both are choosing to follow God's methods, um, it's an incredible blessing. I think what we just heard is really, uh, in a nutshell, what, what I came to uh, the conclusion at the end of the study that if we take this home 
I think that will already make a big difference in, in, in our lives, if that's all we, we get out of it. And I really want to focus pretty much uh, the, the next few minutes just on, on making that point. That this is really where, where we may have missed to see, as a, see Matthew 18 as an opportunity for us to, to grow and to actually live more better lives, more beautiful lives as, as Christians, if we follow that. And I also want to point out on hand of uh, the history of the Anabaptists, because I want to pick on the Anabaptists because they're, you know, they're gone a long time ago, at least the ones I'm going to talk about two, three hundred years ago, four hundred years ago. So I can blame that, them without uh, really risking anything. They can't talk back anymore. And uh, their example really matches what I think we experience as well and why we don't deal with Matthew 18 perhaps in, in the way we should. Why are we not really making use of this scripture more effectively? And I think one, one reason for that is we, well, we may have some, some really mistaken notions about uh, what it is, and I'm sure we, we all do. Or maybe some of you have it right, but I certainly had. But I think also... It's very easy to get offended in, in a process when we try it. How many of you have either engaged in uh, the first step, perhaps, or even the second one, and you came to realize it, the, the net result was only more offense and maybe more sin? I see one hand going up. As a matter of fact, I see many hands going up. When I asked around for... Uh, people that would be able to share some positive experiences. That's what I heard. I tried it once, twice, several times, and it didn't go nowhere. As a matter of fact, there was just offense, unresolved offense. And so we shy away from doing it. Or we observe others do, being involved in that process, Maybe we hear it, or maybe we, they, the people that were in the process tell us afterwards, and they tell us a very negative picture of what that can be. And so we, I think overall, we shy away from even going there. We think right away of uh, Matthew 18 as, as a procedure that the church goes through as a disciplinary procedure more than actually of something that Jesus in this chapter, not only in the verses in 15 through, through 16, uh, 17 and, and 18 perhaps, uh, prescribes to the church, but the entire chapter kind of outlines the, the importance of doing this as, as a daily uh, exercise actually, or, or a, at least often.
I want to go to the reasons why we perhaps misunderstand the uh, real teaching on the hand of the, the history of the Anabaptists. It was in the very beginning of the Anabaptist movement in the 1500s, it was probably the case that the Anabaptists were dealing with it uh, in a very effective way. My uh, study in, in, uh, in Anabaptist uh, history from years ago, and I got uh, from a, a brother uh, an early Anabaptist perspective on discipline in church, which was very helpful to illuminate that point a little bit. I, I gather from that that in the beginning, because all those first members of the Anabaptist churches were first-time or first-generation Christians, they had lots of sin to deal with. And the entire church was used to sin as something that they needed to overcome. Because they realized the church needed to be a, a community of people that would stand out against the background of what was then the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. And so they took that seriously, I believe, and were probably benefited by it in a personal way. And they, I think that they had success. It's kind of hard to, to really ascertain that very, very care, you know, accurately uh, 500 years ago or 400 years ago because the records are not that uh, detailed, really, that we could uh, make judgments th that carefully. But I believe they were doing much better than most churches, whether ours or, or, or others, in that particular area. However, with time... Something changed. That particular issue of Matthew 18 became one of the major stumbling blocks in the, in the Anabaptist uh, history when you, when you study the various movements. Because they were mistaken about several problems, particularly one. And I think we can learn from from that, not to fall into the same trap as a, as a church. This does not address so much the, the first step, as we just heard from, from Sister Barbara. It, it addresses the, the church as a whole and how we perceive that teaching ought to be dealt with. It, it, uh, it really relates back to our human nature that we get back there to the same error again and again. And hopefully we can learn from that and make some improvements. Way back in the very beginning of the Anabaptist movement, we had Hüttmeyer, who was one of the leaders in Marpeck, who had somewhat differing, differing ideas of what Matthew 18 really would mean in terms of uh, 
what it ought to do for the church. And the word you see there, uh, the purity of the church, was used. And I believe they, they used that word uh, probably different from what we would understand it really today uh, when we use it in the context of this discussion. To them, purity was not necessarily a, a church without sin. As I mentioned uh, before, sin was something that was very, very familiar to them, not only from, uh, you know, seeing it, but they came out of, of sin, pretty gross sin, actually. All of them, not just some. And so they, they could deal with that. The one could go to the next to his brother and, and tell him about an error he saw in his life without this brother getting offended because he knew the other one was similarly uh, off just a while ago. It was overtaken by perhaps by a different sin, but it was a normal process. They may have had a little bit differing views of what sin was. Uh, the different churches, there were the Hutterites eventually and so on, and, uh, and uh, Marpeck, who was uh, part of the authors of the Schleitheim Confession, I believe, uh, were doing this thing really right. Later on, we know about the Amish, uh, Jacob Amman, who came like, uh, you know, a hundred years later. He thought that Matthew 18 and especially verse 18 would indicate that the church really had much more authority or was given authority by, the, by this verse to define what sins are that were such that would result in a, in a proceeding of the church itself and exclusion and excommunication of members that would not adhere to those sins that they specified as being outside of the law. In Matthew 18, 18, it says, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. They're referred to, or the parallel passages in, in John 20, 23, and Matthew 16, 19 are referred to sometimes as the key to heaven verses. And Matthew 18, 18 uh, was interpreted, apparently, as that verse that would empower the church to uh, define things and then make rulings that if you were not uh, following, usually there were, there were uh, laws like outward appearance, uh, not driving cars, and back then there was not an issue, but today it is, and many such things that they uh, defined, and if you would be, be disobedient to these rulings, it would result in a, in a disciplinary action of the church in quite often excommunication. 
And I think that's where really uh, things came uh, to be misunderstood again of what Matthew 18 was supposed to be. As I've, I looked at that, and I never really quite understood those verses, I always felt that those key to heaven verses were a, a little bit out of place, or at least I could not really fully uh, put my heart behind it. I didn't believe that St. Peter was, was really uh, empowered to decide who was going to go through the pearly gates, as the, the usual uh, uh, you know, jokes go. Uh, nor was the church really authorized to define sin beyond what the Bible does, and then put the blame on people uh, for not holding on to it. We know that the Amish came into being because of uh, just an outward thing, or at least that there was the one, the one last uh, straw that uh, they used uh, to uh, separate themselves from the Mennonite church. And it was the buttons versus the hooks. Buttons was a new thing in the, in the late 1600s and, and uh, was a new fashion. And they thought they ought to freeze all things that pertain to outward appearance because it could lead to, to sin or a display of sin. And so they should just freeze that at that point and from there on we're not going to change our outward appearance anymore and we won't have that problem in the church. Uh, very simple, and I think they stuck to it uh, until even now. And it was an issue that caused a great division among the Mennonites. And ultimately, the Amish uh, left pretty much Europe and came over here. And so, and so we, we know about them, and we, we have some contact with them. But when we study then the history going on of the Amish, as well as the more conservative Mennonites and other baptized, uh, Anabaptist uh, organizations like the, the Hutterites, we find that they too went all down that road at one time or another and understood Matthew 18 really to be influenced by thinking that somehow it was an issue of the church uh, enforcing a standard on, on the believer in order to keep sin out, in order to keep the church pure. But I don't think it was the original idea of keeping the church pure in that sense, of keeping sin away by order or by law. It's actually the opposite what Sister Barbara told us. If we understand what Jesus wants there, it starts in the individual. The individual believer will seek to be more like Jesus. And out of it uh, comes a totally different uh, perspective of this uh, teaching. I looked at the rest of Matthew 18 because I... I need to, needed to limit the, uh, the research a little bit. Uh, 
And I found that all these parables we have to, and I didn't uh, write them out here, uh, but we all remember those uh, three sections or four sections in, in Matthew 18. The greatest in the kingdom, the question, who is the greatest? And we perhaps think, well, these things are just separate teachings, do not really relate to uh, what it says there, correcting a fellow believer. And I would say, uh, most likely, Matthew put it together that way, and it was not necessarily that Jesus uh, preached uh, Matthew 18 exactly in that order on the same day, uh, trying to put uh, a context on 15 through 18. I'm not saying that. I just say that what Jesus said, as Matthew puts it together in the one chapter, really uh, kind of illuminates what, how we ought to interpret verses 15 through 20. When we look at uh, the first part, he's talking about that we have to be like the little children. In other words, uh, we know we are not really fully mature. We know that we need to get help from others. And that's the attitude for us the required to even come into the kingdom of heaven and then to move on eventually into heaven itself. It's, it's, a, it's a, a necessary condition for us to be in. And we have to keep it that way. The moment we get off of that, we become probably those who are offending the little ones, as he refers in the first uh, 11 verses. And then he moves on to the story of the lost sheep. Uh, and there again, it points out to us that what his focus is is not exclusion. It's not so much about uh, punishment or, or any, anything like that. It is about bringing back the lost sheep, saving the errant uh, believer. And he's talking about believer, obviously, when we talk about lost sheep. So there again, uh, the focus is on recovery. The focus is on growing in faith rather than uh, on exclusion. Moving on to the, the last part, the unforgiving debtor. We remember there was the one who was forgiven 10,000 talents. And he left and he met one of his servants who owed him a, a talent or what, and he did not forgive him. And in verse 35, in, in the final verse, it tells us that if we do not forgive, we will be treated the same way. And again there, it is about forgiveness. It is dealing with each other in the community of believers in the church in such a way that reflects that kind of a teaching rather than uh, a process of uh, a discipline that we shy away from or are, are scared about or are fearful about. It ought to be really something that, that we can embrace. The 
think I moved one too far. I think this slide pretty much uh, just recapitulates, if I could say it, uh, what I just said uh, in, in a different wording. In verse 18, it tells us that it's about restoring, or in, in chapter 8, it tells us about restoring what is not good. And that's how we're going to keep the church pure. Verse 17 is about church discipline. But verse 18 tells us why. It doesn't inform the previous verses as now we can make this the, the central part of the teaching. We, we have verse 17, and it is a requirement. And ultimately, when there is a person who will not receive correction or guidance, and it becomes a, a problem as a, as a witness for the church, or simply a problem of uh, a, a source of conflict quite often that some, some uh, errant members can become, the church needs to take action. And that's, that's clear. We, we know about that. We don't even have to go into that part today. But that, that is certainly one part of the teaching, but it is not the primary aim that is expressed here in that teaching in, in chapter 18. Just to look at that verse in case you don't remember it uh, exactly, it says, There verily I say unto you, whatsoever he shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever he shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does this really mean? Uh, can we do something here? Uh, can we decide something here that, that will uh, be binding for someone else in heaven? Is that possible? I never thought this was really possible. I thought maybe it's the other way around. Maybe whatever I lose or whatever I uh, commit in this life may, may not be forgiven. I, I certainly strive to, to make sure that it will be forgiven. But actually, when we look at this very carefully, it it is actually like that, that if we do not forgive someone, that offense in us will be taken to heaven unless we take care of it now. It is very important that we can see that, that this verse 18 is telling us that there is a future in our lives, and this is part really of the theme of the camp that, that removes all possibility for us to make corrections. And that much more important it is that we deal with all offense and all the 
the, the sins that really that we can recognize are pointed out to us because it will be too late. It will be bound. It will be, it will be fixed. And that's why he, he invites us to, to do that together as a community of believers to help each other to, to recognize it, first of all, because I don't recognize my sins as easily as somebody else. And I'm very good at pointing out the errors of others uh, that they may not see. And so we, we need each other to do that more effectively. And if we do not, the consequences are, are more serious than I could even, uh, that, that I dare to go and, and consider what they are, what they would be. Is, we read, read the last verse, uh, verse 35, um, it would indicate to me that perhaps some of the things will not be forgiven. And therefore, our reward in heaven will be reduced by that. But we have not undone or unbound here on earth. I say, it is less about removing bad apples from the church as it, about, as it is about bad apples helping bad apples to get healed and to get better. I kind of always wondered a little bit about that uh, saying about the bad apples, and actually the, the early Anabaptists used that as well. And we all know that a, a, a bad apple can actually spoil another apple if you keep them together because of the ethanol that, that acts like a hormone that will ripen the fruits uh, next to it much quicker. And so we take this, this analogy into the church. But when you think about it, does this, is this really true? Is this really true? I think we are actually all bad apples. Because we were at one time. We, we may not think so, but we were, and sometimes still are. And what got us to be different? What is the ingredient? Was it the good apples that made us good? That changes from a bad apple to a good apple? Because we, we had another good apple next to us? It doesn't work like that. And not even with, with apples it works like that. It's just the other way around, perhaps. But how did we get to be good apples? Well, we know. By the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, through his blood. And so why could a bad apple undo that? I think it kind of defies the, the, the very understanding of why we become healed from our sins. It's because of him. And, if, and, and that's got to be very clear to us that it is Jesus Christ and it is the, his blood that gives us the power to recognize and even the insight, as Barbara uh, told us, when we study it hard enough, we will actually come to that uh, by ourselves. It is that very solution in, in each one of our lives that 
changes us from bad apples to good apples, and it's, we don't really have to worry about so much to exclude the bad apples from our circles. There is a place for that. We, 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 we recognize that. And we, we, we deal with it, actually, we deal with it quite successfully to that extent that we, that we try to sift that out. But that is not what, what we really should think about in, in the process of Matthew 18. We should think about that we need to undo in this life while we can, the things that we can undo. <clears throat> and uh, at the end here, I was thinking about offense, because so, so often offense uh, is what we think about uh, when we think about Matthew 18. I know many people, or many uh, in person, I've heard of, of many, but I, I know a number of people who don't come to church anymore. And when asked, well, wh why, are, why did you stop to come to church? Well, such and such uh, told me I can't do this and I can't do that, or I was wrong here. And they were offended through the process. And some of them may not go that far. They may just simply not speak to you anymore or become very cold. Some may just uh, stay away from assembling with, with believers for long periods of time and then eventually leave. It happens all the time. And so, offense is a very big part. It's not just sin in, in our lives that, may, that we may see and need to be corrected. It is actually more like uh, King James uh, words it in verse 15. It, it, it usually results in an offense if it was not a, an offending thing in, in your experience that is recognized as a sin. And I think... This, this whole idea of offense um, that comes into our lives is sometimes perceived, well, it, it is not just uh, an annoyance or, or it, it's a, a problem that I need to deal with. Uh, we think oh, it's the other person that is offending me is, is the real problem, and we need somehow, we need to correct that. We need to address that. But what about being offended. What about if I am offended, how do I deal with that? If I remain offended into eternity, I have not undone this of offense. And it will stay with me. It is, it is paramount that we, when we are offended, that we do something about it. What does Matthew 18:15 uh, say? If you're offended, if your brother trespasses against you, in other words, if it's not a sin that, that was committed there, at least if we read it in, in that translation, it's not a sin that's committed against God. It's a, a sin that apparently is committed against you. If you're offended, you must do something about it. It's not optional. 
You can't walk away from it. If you leave the church, you haven't resolved anything. And so often that happens. And perhaps because we may not have the right approach. We may not do it the right way when we try to help someone. And I could imagine that I would have some left-handed ways of doing it. Uh, and others I uh, have witnessed have uh, that ability to, to offend in, in the process of trying to help someone with sin. So it, it's important that we approach this with a, with a sense of, of, of love. And we have a, a number of recommendations that I got from a, an elder brother who, who I think, uh, I don't think he's here uh, this week. I haven't seen him. And, but I, from what I see, he was very successful at, in implementing that in his life after an initial bad experience. And I think we can learn uh, from some of the recommendations there. But I think it's important for us to know that when we are offended, there is probably a sin involved in our lives as well. Not just to somebody else who offended us. And it is vitally important that we deal with that. Deal with the offense. Go to the person. And the process will set you free. If we do it in, with the right motivation. Same, of course, for the one who uh, sees just a, a, a sin in someone else and tries to help. The right motivation, important. If we can just learn from the history of the Anabaptists, and probably uh, to some extent we just inherited some of their, their views as well, and just do away with the negative notion or connotation that, that Matthew 18 has, and become much more open with each other, knowing that we are, we are bad apples uh, in a process of helping each other to uh, undo what the world, what the, what the devil can uh, bring back into our lives, we'll, we'll have gained uh, a lot. And that's uh, perhaps the most important thing we can take away with from this forum. I have a number of guidelines um, that uh, I gleaned from contributions of this uh, uh, brother as well as others that I heard because I really couldn't come up with these things very easily myself. Uh, it is important that when we approach a brother or sister that we, that we uh, pray and consult the Spirit before we do that, long before we, we even make a step. We, we need to really work on that, perhaps for weeks. And as I uh, point out here, it should not be an unconverted person. I have seen several cases, and uh, one of those I mentioned that don't come back anymore, were not converted. And if you apply Matthew 18 to a person who is not converted, well, obviously it's going to be misunderstood. It's impossible they could possibly understand it right. All you're going to do is offense. In their, create offense in their lives. 
and sin that results out of it. Check your motive. Is my concern only to restore? Remember that gaining your brother is the goal. If you are not able to use several scriptures to support your position, consider someone to help you find scriptural basis without betraying the confidentiality of the person. Uh, we may say, well, it, this gets close to a gossip. Well, we have to be very careful that this does not get into a gossip if we go after a long time uh, of considering the issue and we eventually realize we may not have it all straight and we need uh, unbiased advice. Uh, we need to go to someone who, who can be really unbiased towards either the other person or me and has, actually has the wherewithal to, to look through scripture to analyze, uh, is my observation right? Am I right? Am I wrong? And I think we probably are advised to do that because uh, we can't go to the other person to ask because they, they're obviously biased because they're, they're in, we, we perceive them to be in error. And so we have to perhaps get somebody who is uh, not involved in that at all. But let's make sure it is not uh, a gossip, does not go... Uh, into a, a, a gossip. When, when we approach someone, uh, he says that chances that we are perceived as confrontational. And of course, that's, that's normal. So we have to make sure we, we don't come across as, as preaching, as, as legalistic and judgmental. Otherwise, we just stop the whole process right there and in, in uh, only offense will result. Make sure there's no longer anger in your heart. And, you know, we, we think, oh, I, I've overcome my problem. I really, I, I, I could forgive or I have forgiven. And then only to later on find out it actually comes back. Uh, uh, given the right button pushed, it, it will come right back. So we have to be very careful that we, we don't go there uh, into that process with, with something that we really haven't uh, prayed about very carefully and, and removed our anger by the grace of God. And one good advice was you go slow. And it may take many sessions with a person. Don't jump, jump quickly uh, into this, this process, especially you know, go, go to the next step to go and uh, to uh, adding a witness to this because that already adds again to this, this uh, connotation that, oh, this is now a, a punitive process that has been started. Uh, it's much better to, to remain in that first, on that first level uh, of communicating between two believers that are just the bad apples helping each other. And only after a careful uh, work that we would move on to, to that. And finally, uh, if we go to the next step and, we, and, and uh, sure that, that the witnesses are unbiased, not friends who share all your preferences, but neutral and well-versed in the word, capable of correcting you also. If, if they cannot correct us, 
it's probably, they're probably not qualified to help us with that. But we, we really need to go to someone uh, that has the capability even of, of uh, telling us uh, perhaps something new that we haven't, we haven't really thought through yet. Remember not acting when we see a brother in a trespass is not being obedient to his word. Now, that is pretty much my experience, and precisely because uh, we are fearful of going to someone and, and proposing to them that they're sinful or there's they're sin in their life that, that needs to be corrected. Uh, so we just, we just step back, we do nothing. It's, it's really not optional when we look at these verses, especially verse 18. We will leave it undone for eternity. We've we got to do something about it. We have the obligation to resolve it. Avoiding the process is, is really not uh, acceptable. And uh, time is, is really uh, up. And I would like to ask if there are any, any uh, questions, any, any thoughts you would want to share uh, that I can answer, but maybe somebody else can. Closing your eyes to to, to a sin, which is, is you know. But I could be offended by something that is not sinful. Even the scripture says here it's a trespass. It's not necessarily uh, a sin. And what if I just say, look, they don't know better. It's not an issue that I am offended by. I forgive them for that. Am I still obligated to go in a situation? Well, no, perhaps not. If if you're if you're you know free with, with that is not that is not a sin in their lives that needs to be corrected. Uh, no, I don't think so. If it's enough that you need to actually forgive somebody, then I would wonder. Well, no, just say if somebody says something to you in a way that you could be offended if you chose to be. And I say to myself, I choose not to hold this against them. Yeah, but then you're not offended. I'm not offended. Right. You don't right. have to forgive. 
then you don't have to forgive. So the, the fewer times that I'm offended, the better off I really am because I don't have to do this. But but that could be an excuse too. That could be an excuse too, right? I mean, we're just talking about offense, a personal offense. But uh, on the other hand, if that other person has a habit of offending people, I think just saying, I have actually, I, I know a case like that in, in my experience where I should have said something. It didn't offend me too many times, but he offended others, and I should have said something because the, the end result was not good at all. Good. Uh, back there. Yeah, well, I, I just want to make sure that we don't understand that shrinking from the process is actually, or, or, or finding an excuse not to go through it is actually not, oh, yeah. It, it, it's okay to, 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 to go into the process as long as we do it in the right frame of mind. And then we both learn from, from our, our thoughts. In other words, you mentioned that we should give the person time to approach them. And I'm just wondering if there's maybe another comment or statement or insight if that person rejects the initial approach, at what point would we say, well, now I would need a witness? Or if, if, if the initial, uh, not complication, the initial meeting, that's the wrong word, the initial meeting is very negative, um, you know, should we then say we need to take uh, action immediately? Uh, or is there a guideline on that or some insight perhaps that someone has? Which would lead to a second question, is how come we don't by the 17th person. Because I've been involved in bringing in witness and everything was let time happen, let time happen, time never happened, and the relationship turned sour, and yes, we're the bitter and developed. And at what point do we bring it to the church? Because it is scriptural reference. It is. Yeah, I agree. We're talking about uh, we are scripturally obligated, but yet at verse 17, there seems to be a wall where we're not obligated anymore, and it goes over to the authority of the church, and they being not to involve themselves, and all of a sudden there's breaks going on. Anybody has a, an insight on that? What, what is the right timing? When, when do we move on to, to this first 17 step? And, and I think, if, if I can just venture a thought, uh, after we have very carefully uh, prayed, thought to that, discussed it with the other person, and, and, and found this, this uh, impossibility to resolve it, uh, we go to you know, the next step and get this person that, that is totally unbiased and help us uh, to sift through it. And if that person cannot uh, accept that, um, well, it says maybe do it one more time or, or get a, th a third person in, and eventually we'll, I think it will come out. The, the Lord will, will guide us in, in when it needs to be done. Is it the purpose of um, verse 17 after you, you um, 
let's say you remove them, it's so that you're not infecting the church or the body of, let's say, some sort of um, false teaching or false... Um, and that's the way I see it. I, I always look at it as that the reason why we're going to bring it to the church and bring it before the people because there's a brother or sister that's not um, wanting to accept whatever sin that they're committing or whatever that they're doing. And it's, it's also something that they might be teaching because God's always been about separating ourselves from the world and these false teachers and these false doctrines. And so by purifying and making sure that that stays pure, um, we remove those that are teaching and that are bringing about false doctrine. Well, if it's really false doctrine, I think that will be sifted out uh, reasonably well. I think, we're, I think we're doing well enough on that area, I would, I would imagine. I don't, I don't think there's too many people you know, running around and preaching you know, really false doctrine that we would not be able to uh, weed out. Yeah. Okay, well, as far as false doctrine and all that, there are other scriptures that deal specifically with that. So we can't use Matthew on that at all. What, and the biggest problem is that we have to understand what well, once it becomes in front of the church, we're not dealing with the initial situation at all. We're not talking about an interpersonal relationship problem at that point. We're dealing with disobedience. Disobedience to the Spirit of God in saying and understanding that there was something wrong that could have been resolved way back there. First step. We didn't listen to the Holy Spirit along the way. We didn't listen to our brothers and, and sisters that are trying to resolve that issue. We are being mad at this point that's why the church has to take a much stronger role. It is now about disobedience. It's not about that initial interpersonal problem. Yes, I would agree. I think um, that's why I really didn't get, get into that part of the topic uh, at all, because it's, those are really almost separate issues. Uh, when, it, when it gets to that point where, where the church needs to take action, uh, according to verse 17, I mean, uh, that, that is really way beyond of what we were talking about today. Uh, you know, we, we're assuming that the other person is at fault. That's where we fall into that trap every time. The thing you have to do first is look at yourself and inwardly realize what had you contributed <coughs> to that. And if usually that resolves 95% of the problem because you're as much as fault as the other person. If that's not resolved with prayer and we're looking at scripture, um, truths, and talking to somebody else, keeping confidentiality, then you can move to another, to another step where you realize really it's not you, it's really the other person who is causing the offense. We contribute significantly to every offense we feel from others. And unless you first resolve your own issue, we're not going to get anywhere. Once it gets to the church, hopefully all of these things have been done, have been studied and dealt with and prayed over many, many times before it's clear that that other person has done something horrible and that nothing's going to work. Then that's, yeah, that's very, very uh, I think I think it still could work, potentially, even at, at that point. And it does say so, that you know, the, 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 the aim is that even perhaps this last step would, would uh, 
bring results. And, uh, it, I, I'm confident it can work, but it, yes, I would agree. It's very, very unlikely, actually. The only thing I would like to say that, in my experience, we have learned that many times these things are taken care of before it ever gets to the church. We're saying here that the church don't deal with this stuff. And it's because I believe many times they are dealt with, it's between the two, maybe even the witnesses, and it's taken care of. And that's the key to this thing, is to gain your brother at the beginning. And that's why I believe it's never come to the church, and the church don't have to deal with it. That, that would be the idea, yeah. I and mean, I think it, it does work to, to, to some extent. Yeah. I was just mentioning to uh, uh, the brother here that uh, it's something that actually the secular world is now um, doing too, like interventions, where maybe it's not the church, but it's the body of, let's say, their family. And they actually do these interventions where they're trying to get somebody out of some sort of offense or something like that. And it, it's effective, you know. It's you know something that they're taking from Scripture and applying it to a secular Situation. Yeah. Thank you. Well, and, and the Mennonites are actually really good at, at teaching. Uh, they have seminars to, to, to the world, uh, you know, to, to business and, and, and politics and so on. They're, they're very good at that, at conflict resolution and, and, and so on. And yet, I don't know what. Uh, the, the, uh, way past time, yeah.